Thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access Patreon membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure, 99.999% fun. I've gotten to interview people like Disha Filia, what, Matt Bell, Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Cochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Jose Antonio Vargas, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Hello and welcome to episode 176 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Reagan Petruca. Reagan Petruca writes, edits, and consults creatively and professionally. Her chat book, An Animal I Can't Name, won the 2015 Two of Cups press competition. Her debut poetry collection, Head of a Gorgon, was published by Vegetarian Alcoholic Press in 2022, in May 2022. She has a memoir in progress. She received her MFA from Bowling Green State University, where she was an assistant editor for Mid-American Review. Her work has been published in Cimarron, Cimarron, uh, Cimarron Review, Puerto del Sol, and other journals. Connect with her at Reagan, R-A-E-G-E-N-M-P dot WordPress dot com, R-A-E-G-E-N-M-P dot WordPress dot com, and on Twitter at Free Radical RP. Woo! I was a mouthful, and the e- the words I thought I wouldn't have trouble with, I did, but the harder ones I handled. How are you today? <laughs> Good. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, you know, I- I'd known it, but seeing again that the that head of a gorgon was the debut poetry collection. That's not fair because that was what a what a rookie, what a debut, man. We'll Aww. we'll talk about it a little bit later, of course. But um, I mean, I know obviously it wasn't the first thing you've ever written, but a heck of a collection of whether it's debut or not. Thanks again for joining me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. We've been, uh, you know, social media friends for a while now. Um, so it's great to talk to you in person, at least across the screen. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to know um, how how it all started. Like, um, you know, what was, what was your early relationship with, with the written word? Um, were you that one, you know, writing in your journals and diaries and um, you know, going to the library all the time. How did that work with your connection to to writing and, and reading? 
So I actually learned how to read before I can remember learning how to read. Um, oh. So my, yeah, my mom, I, I think it was because I was like the firstborn and like, you know, sometimes parents like go overboard with that. And so I actually, according to my oh, mother, learned never, how to read never. <laughs> when I was like two and a half. So um, I've been just, I, I've been a reader for before since I can even remember. Hmm. Um, and I remember uh, in second grade, we had a teacher, Miss Buckman, who had us make our own books, right? So we wrote our little stories and, and we even got to like illustrate our own story, you know, stick figure stuff and, you know, whatever. And I mean, these, these were not, you know, uh, masterpieces and certainly like the, it seems like the writing that, that children today actually like are capable of and actually get published sometimes is like <laughs> amazing by comparison. Yeah. I mean, there was me with my little Crayolistic figures and these, you know, second grade books, but that was actually my earliest experience with any kind of like writing or storytelling of a like fictional nature, not like practicing cursive or, you know, handwriting or like um, write this essay, this five paragraph standard thing, or what's your thesis? So those that's that's sort of my earliest experiences. Oh, and of course, then there was like the Book It program where like, Mm. you know, when you grade school and you got like the more you read you got the little star stickers and then you got the free pizzas and so that of course was incentive Mm -hmm. because I love pizza and and foodie in general so (laughs) yeah I mean it was like hey I was I I really enjoyed doing this anyway and now I really enjoy it because now I get pizza too exactly was that I mean I was so I was so big into that too My, my brothers and I my whole family was was that like an honor system like did they just kind of like well you said you read it so I'm trying to remember um Gosh, you know, to be honest, I can't even really remember. I do remember having to do pretty regular book reports. Uh, okay. Where, and, and I can't remember if the two were connected or not. Mm. I just remember having to do a lot of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so they might have been, but it might have also just been like, that was my teacher's way of doing it, not necessarily yeah. the program's way of doing it. Oof. But yeah, I mean, if I... If I like, I actually did read it. Like I was. No, I believe you. I believe you. A nerdy kid. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not calling you out. I'm not calling. Oh you out. no, no. <laughs> but I mean, like, I I really was. Like, I'm sure that there were people who maybe weren't, um, <laughs> even at that age. Right. Um, but I was. I was the nerdy one that was. <laughs> um. Who Who were you reading? Who or what? I mean, did you have like favorite series or like certain authors that? Really I mean, the stuff you? off the top of my head is like, I, I mean, it, it, like Sweet Valley High, mm. Benicula, um, you know, that kind of stuff. There yeah. was, um, I have a copy of it, although I, I, I just remember, um, uh, it's been so long that I can't actually remember much of the story, but I remember loving it so much that I have an, a physical copy that I, that I'm promising myself that once I finally get through all these other books yeah. <laughs> that I'm one day going to revisit and it's called Peppermints in the Parlor. And I can't even tell you the name of the author, but it was, it was a, a story that struck me when I was young and that I made sure to have a copy of so that at some point, hopefully before I die, uh, I will actually revisit because I've just my stack, my to be read stack is just yeah. 
every time I turn around and I, I knock another thing out, it's like three more get added to the pile. And it just, it's like, it's just such an effort and futility to keep up. <laughs> a good problem to have though, right? Yeah, problem. for sure. Yeah. Well, did you, I mean, did you find like a type of like es- escapism? Like, were you reading about, I mean, you know, Sweet Valley and all that, but like, were you reading about yeah. like, things that were not, not any, anywhere close to your life experience? Or did you feel like you're more like grounded in reality? And you might not have been able to say it at, you know, age seven, like I read realism. But, like, do you feel like it tended towards more like science fiction and escapism or more mm-hmm. like more realistic? I think it was more that I was just open to reading. I, I mean, I was, I was open to reading whatever like either the teacher assigned or I somehow came across at the library um you know for my age you know age appropriate stuff or whatever um I didn't find myself necessarily gravitating towards any one thing I mean I I don't actually recall reading any poetry outside of Shel Silverstein before Mm. um like high school so I can tell you that. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, I don't, I hope it's different nowadays, but yeah. I don't, I I can't readily recall actually reading poetry, yeah. like a whole book of poetry, right, right, right. maybe like a poem here or there, but not an actual collection of any sort, like again, outside of like a Shel Silverstein type deal. That's, um, that's, before that's a great point. That's a great point. Like, I, I, I think there's something to be said about like, students seeing poetry is just kind of like a one-off and just not yeah not you know i mean we're gonna talk about your collection i mean there are there are themes there are motifs there's there are through lines right i think there's i think there's something missing yeah it's so funny too because i i got a long i got pretty long arms if i can reach there it is (laughs) yeah exactly the most famous bottom of the feet ever right (laughs) (laughs) he was if you're if you if if people out there are listening and, and same for you Reagan if you want to go down the Twitter maybe like the last two weeks or so but Shell Silverstein kind of went viral again for just some of the oh, like off the wall picture like author pictures that he took you know but no I mean and kudos to, to to him like you know it's funny because like as a kid that wouldn't even register and yes. now like as an adult it's like ooh like you know yeah. you have feelings about those types of things like yeah. Lots of feelings, lots of opinions, especially on Twitter. Exactly right. He, I'm, I'm, I'm reading. The, I mean, talk about the collection. I've been reading these for you know, a year or months to my kids at bedtime. So they really, they really do see it as a collection. And we just got the new one. I say the new one, but Light in the Attic, which was the second one. And yeah, it's really cool to see like the difference, even in the themes and all that. But gotta love him. But he was definitely off the wall, right? He was definitely a product of the '70s. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can't say I've revisited a Shel Silverstein book since I was a child, but that's okay, you know, okay. like, again, got, I, think, got you I think certain things have their place, right, exactly. Exactly, and there like, you go. There if you it go. resonates later, cool, and if it doesn't, that's okay, too, because Lord knows there's plenty of books that, again, I, I will continue to be buried under. <laughs> definitely, definitely. You've done, um, well, so, so yeah, so as you went into, like, adolescence, into college, and, you know, maybe right after school and all that, like, and even contemporary, shoot, let's keep going. Who, um, who really? I mean, were there? Who were some of the pivotal writers? What were some of the pivotal pieces, texts that you read that really put you on your own path? Like, you know, that double consciousness of like, this writer's incredible. I could never do this yet. I want to do this. I want to. Yeah. Like, so my number one would be Louise Gluck. Okay. Um, so um, I read in undergrad um, her poem "Mock Orange." 
And that one in particular really stood out to me. So there's a line in there where, you know, she, she basically says, you know, I like, like I hate sex. Now I'm not saying she says the speaker says, right. right? right. It's not like, he's just like, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was just such a, I found it to be such a striking and unusual thing at, that time in my life at that age and in that era. So like this would have been late nineties mm-hmm. um, when I was in college. So like, it, I think it it might be hard for people who are like in college today to like reflect back and think that there was anything like even remotely subversive about that statement. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then <laughs> there actually was, especially for someone, you know, uh, like me where like that, that kind of subject, especially with like uh, the women in my family, I mean, like, like people just didn't talk about it, let alone talk about it like that. And there was something that just felt really powerful. And plus Luke's voice is just so authoritative anyway, like Mm. everything she writes, like she's like the only person who could be like, the sky is red. And you'd be like, yeah, it totally is because she knows. Mm. And she said it and Mm. like, yeah, like the way, like the way she's going to lay it out. Right. Like utterly convincing, utterly authoritative and without question, like mm. it is true. Yeah. Um. She just, that she has that about her voice. Like that's just, I, I, I just find it to be one of the, the huge strengths and kind of in, in many respects, I feel incomparable to mm. anybody else that I've, read i'm not saying nobody else has an authoritative voice i just think it's incomparable to hers right based on what i've read so um so that really kind of opened my eyes to this this sort of idea that okay maybe this is a way for me to say some things that um i haven't yet found a way to say or uh, a medium or you know, a form to kind of say these things through. And that's not to say that these things can't be said through, through prose. So like another example of um, great writing, because I actually started out, my undergrad uh, focus is in fiction, not poetry. Okay. So I took about an even amount of workshops in both mm-hmm. poetry and uh, fiction in undergrad, but mm-hmm. um, Mona Simpson's story, short story, Lawns. Oh yeah. Which is about survivorship. And, um, that was another just extremely powerful piece that, you know, again, I mean, I I feel very fortunate that I had professors who were sharing this type of work because I've also had professors who were very much not sharing women's voices and not sharing, um, stories that could even like potentially go in a, a like a political direction yeah, 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 yeah. of any sort you know like let's not rock the boat let's not question anything that you know like any kind of structural hatred things going on here <laughs> let's not talk about that mm. um and i can sort of understand that perspective although i completely disagree with it you know i, I feel very fortunate that i had professors that actually did understand that literature can have a very uh, powerful role in our society if we choose to embrace that that power, um, whether as a reader or as a writer or both. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah. So those would be two pieces just off the top of my head that were pretty pivotal, just kind of out of the gates. And then from there, then it was like a slow sort of emerging into then what ultimately is the Gorgon. <laughs> yes. Oh, I pre- it I was a slow crawl to the Gorgon, but yes. I got there. But first of all, I'd love to ask you about, you know, just being an editor as you have been for various uh, over various years and various magazines. Do you I mean, I guess the, the obvious answer is yes, but I guess the, the follow up is how do you read differently now? Did, does it does it affect you reading for pleasure now that you have like the editor's eye, the editor's hat? Does that make sense? It does. Um, you know, everything kind of affects me as a reader. Like, I, I mean, and maybe that sounds dumb. I don't know. <laughs> but it it really does. Like, I mean, there are things that have happened on like Twitter that now have affected the way that I read and the things that matter to me. I, I mean, and it's it's like, what? Like, that just sounds yeah. insane. But it's true. Like, there are things that have happened to me personally that affect, I mean, that they're, I've I've made some choices as an editor in years past. In fact, I was just talking about this the other day with my fiance. Like I would have made a different decision on, and I I, I don't want to get too into detail because I don't want anybody potentially being able to identify this particular thing, but I would have made a different decision on a particular thing now than I made several years ago Hmm. when I was the person I was at that moment um, and making that decision in that moment um, because I have come to value other things above um, more above the things that I valued more back then. So it's not so, okay. So along the way, I feel that I have, and this would go both creatively and professionally because I've been an editor in chief professionally over a magazine as well as a features editor and and doing the, the actual writing, mm-hmm. um, but also at, at a lit mag and then helping uh, an undergrad journal, you know, bloom basically yeah. from from the ground up. Oh wow! Um, and it, it's it's like. you you go through and you kind of learn about writing and and maybe you are doing the writing as well and so you're learning by doing the craft but you're learning through reading and you're learning through engaging with other creatives and hearing ideas and do i believe in this idea or do i not and mm-hmm. you know just kind of you're always kind of like pushing up against something and you're either agreeing with it or you're disagreeing with it right I mean, yeah, there's gray area, but like, you know, it's a spectrum, sure. But like, you're going in one direction versus another. Mm -hmm. I used to very, very much value um, the, 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 and and not to say that I don't, I, I, I so very much appreciate an excellent proofreading. Like if somebody has <laughs> proofed their work or hired somebody to proof the work before uh, it gets to me, yeah. it's like, you know, the light from heaven shines down, the clouds part, the sun is shining and uh, everything's magical, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can still very much appreciate that. But now part of me knows and has this greater awareness that that sort of, 
again, I still appreciate that, but it, it, I, I value it differently because I understand the privilege that is, mm. that is associated with that oftentimes. Uh, okay. Okay? So there can be an educational privilege, a class privilege, a racial privilege, a gender privilege. There are all these different types of privileges that, that ultimately can land on the page or not. Right. And the form of, is this word word spelled right? Is the correct punctuation used? Do I trust ultimately that this author poet is using these elements of craft deliberately or because they don't have, they, or haven't had access to a particular level of education that we expect people to have within this industry. Mm. Okay. So I very much more these days, and again, not saying that that's not important or that I don't value that, but more these days, I value the heart in a piece. The Do, do I feel like there is a, a connection to a larger human experience that, that I feel has just really been transmitted well? Even if maybe there's an extra piece or two that kind of threw me off within this manuscript or a line or two that maybe didn't hit me the way I felt it should, like every single line needs to hit and every single punctuation mark needs to be perfect. My my thinking and my feeling on it, actually, more feeling these days is far less rigid um, as an editor generally. Like I'm much more concerned about, is there a a story that again, really has that heart and is a story that we don't hear often. We haven't heard at all is from a voice that we don't hear from often or don't hear from at all. Um, I've, I, to be totally honest, I've never really gravitated towards like, dude poetry and and I couldn't tell you really why that was until recently I would say the last couple of years and now I now because I've kind of grown into this sort of different prioritization I can tell you that that is very much why I don't um I feel like I've heard all that before Mm. and also that there isn't much heart that's not saying I, this is a generalization. It's a broad generalization. Yeah. That's just my preference as a reader. And, and that's as an editor, that's all I'm saying in yeah. that statement. Like yeah. certain things resonate with me more than other things. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm, I'm more interested in stories that have heart and are from voices that I, that I just don't often hear from or hear from enough or subjects mm-hmm. that we don't talk about enough. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of how I've, I guess, evolved as an editor. Yeah. I appreciate that. You know, the, my little tagline for the podcast is, you know, about the visceral, about, you know, about the, the writing that affects you viscerally. Yeah, um, and you know, I mean, it, I mean, one of the major influences was like Tobias Wolf, one of his stories that is just like 
you know, I call it to mind when I, when I want to feel, you know, yeah, it's, it's about feeling. So yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate what you're saying. Anything having to do with taste is somehow objective. It's not right. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, an, that's an obvious statement. Obviously, if it has to do with taste, it's, it's subjective. And, but then, you know, obviously you recognize good writing, but it's good writing because it's hits you in the heart because it makes you feel, I appreciate that. Watch me, watch me just try to try to make this link in this transition here. So you're talking about you're talking about pathos, which is Greek, and so is Gorgon and Medusa. Yeah, 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 yeah. The best slash worst transition I've ever made. Segway. But the collection came out last um, May, and I don't know how I didn't laugh laugh in, in in appreciation when I read the name of the press, Vegetarian Alcoholic Press. What a great name. Yeah, and you know the tragic thing is, is that they actually uh, changed it recently oh. to just be a yeah. So okay. well, okay, they changed to. Um, I mean, I'm I'm glad because it still has that on my book. Yes, um, and so I actually told uh, the publisher, I'm like, hey, that just makes all of the books that you've published with that name, they're all collectors. Exactly. Items. Yeah. Like yeah, sell them yeah. for a million dollars. There it is. <laughs> um, but because they they've switched into a nonprofit organization and they're actively pursuing grants. Okay. They don't want people getting like sort of the wrong idea. I mean, it's yeah. a punk rock name, but ultimately like punk rock in the world of grants, is not necessarily <laughs> the, the vibe you're going for. Um, so yeah. So they, they technically changed it of course, but it's still that on my book. Um, and I'm happy for that. It's a great title. It's, uh, you know, it's the Gorgon, obviously, there's a lot with Greek mythology. One of your, I don't know if you call it the epigraph, like a dedication is, quote, for all who have looked in the mirror and seen the snakes. Um, you got me going down the Wikipedia rabbit hole, you know, as, as Joseph Campbell wrote a lot about, like, the connection between, like, Freud and Medusa. And this is part of the quote. It's, um, well, this, I guess this is more just about, like, kind of like the Greek, the Greek psyche. Quote, that is to say, there occurred in the early 13th century BC an actual historic rupture, a sort of sociological trauma, which has been registered in this myth, referring to Medusa. Much as what Freud terms the latent content of a neurosis is registered in the manifest content of a dream, registered yet hidden, registered in the unconscious yet unknown or misconstrued by the conscious mind. Sorry, that's a lot, but just the idea of like, um, of this this trauma that came through Medusa, I I love to kind of back up and for you to give a little bit of the the seeds for the book and just the idea of of Gorgon and Medusa. I thought I knew about Medusa and I did, but there's a lot more to it. <laughs> so I guess I'm just asking yeah. about what, what was what's the draw for you? What was the draw for you in Medusa? What was the draw for you in Gorgon? Sure. So um, this, so I was in grad school. So this would have been um, like 2006, 2007. I graduated in 2008. And um, for some reason I I had this idea. So my mom is actually a breast cancer survivor. Mm. She had a double mastectomy as a result. Okay. And that changed her relationship to her body. Um, It certain men in our lives, their relationship to her changed based on this. Um, and th- there, so there was sort of this like idea that kind of, for me, resonated with this concept of Medusa, that, that, that there's a trauma that a woman experiences and it then is manifested physically in her body. Right. 
Um, I mean, although that that's very like literal when it comes to my mother. I mean, there was a physical trauma that it wasn't manifested. It, it actually took place in yeah. her body. Um, and I thought, well, you know, maybe there's like, there's something to kind of explore there and build out. And when I got home that night after workshop, when I sort of had this little light bulb moment of like, oh, I, sh- you know, maybe I can connect these things into a poem. I'd written about my mom's, um, that type of survivorship before. Um, and when I started researching, um, that's when I discovered the many, many versions of the Medusa myth that yeah. have been told and retold and reexamined and reimagined over the years. And that's when I, I sort of realized, okay, like, let's scrap that idea um, and let's kind of go down this other path. And so my thesis really focused on these other retellings, uh, like these many retellings of the myth and how, how that related to kind of basically not letting a a woman tell her own story, Mm. but the more, and especially after I graduated, the, the last workshop that I had with my mentor and advisor, Larissa Sporla, um, you know, she, she was like, I had been, I'd been kind of writing on two different paths. So one was the thesis stuff that was Medusa focused. And then the other was just like other stuff, more, more sort of personal poems, just like that, just anything, not Medusa. Mm. And this, we're at this last workshop and she's like, you know what I think you should do or think about, like, maybe you should be bringing together like the Medusa stuff and then like this other personal stuff and like making it into a singular narrative. And I'm just like, wow, like, that's like really interesting timing. Mm. <laughs> but actually it was perfect timing because, um, you know, some of the stuff and, and you've read it is really not stuff that... Um, I would have wanted to bring to that workshop, no offense to my colleagues or anything like that. It's just um, that some of this work is stuff that I really just needed to work on without sort of these outside voices of any kind. Mm -hmm. And now when I say that, also understand that I'm reading heavily. I had these people in my workshop. I kind of know what this person or that person might say within that context about this particular poem or this particular line. You know, you kind of, it's not like, like you carry these influences with you. It's not like they just disappear. Like you don't have, you know, it's much like a conscience, right? Like you don't just wake up one day and you have no conscience or sense of right or wrong or sense of good or bad or whatever. I hope not. Whatever. You know, that's not reality. And similarly with influences. So, you know, I'm reading books and I'm thinking, I'm looking at past notes from people. But those are poems that I really feel like I needed to be working on by myself, with myself, and the research that I had done on the Medusa myths, various versions. Um, And so it was actually the perfect time. And I also needed to kind of go through some stuff personally. Mm -hmm. Um, to be the writer that I needed to be in order to take the story in the direction of focusing on telling this story from her perspective primarily and and really focusing and, and homing in on the fact that, you know, this is a story for me of survivorship. Like to me, the, the real story is 
she was sexually assaulted. There, there is no question for me in my version, in my mind about the meaning of the myth and, and what actually happened. There are other versions mm-hmm. that indicate otherwise. So I don't want to say like, that's not that those versions are wrong. They're just other versions. Sure. But to me, the, the heart of the story for myth, generally speaking, there's always a lesson, right? And for me, the lesson of Medusa is really communicating something of that nature mm-hmm. um, more than not. So that's what happened after I graduated. I really shifted from focusing on the multiple tellings then into this one singular narrative that did actually combine some stuff that was outside, but but reshaped it into something that is her story, not really mine, if that mm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, preach that, like you said, the subject matter is 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 difficult at times. It's, it's described, you know, the trigger warning, sexual violence, suicidal ideation. Um, just for those who get it, I want you to know that, but I want you to buy the thing book. Um, like you said, it's uh, like I, like I'm, it's just it's just it's an incredible read. It really is the the collection coming together, and it's so interesting to hear about the the retelling that you have, and um, it, then in the end, at, at 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 the base of it, right, it's about it's about sexual assault. It's about her lack of choice in anything involved, right? And right. surviving, that's the important part to me. Right, and that's the way that it, it works out chronologically, right? They're, the ending ones yes. are, are definitely about the survivorship part of it. Excellent. And not done in any sort of cheap way. It's really it's really like a, a hard-fought victory, right? I mean, to, to go through the different poems, and that, I mean, that's not the way to describe it. You know, that's, that's, I don't want to cheapen it. It's a book that, that has all kinds of subheadings, right? It's a book that is broken into parts. The survivorship part, you know, like like we're saying, it's not, it's not cheapened. It's not hackneyed. It's not, you know, it's not some. It's very original, um, in that it is, you know, societal because we're talking about her as representative of of so many people, and you know, just in the individual as well. So the micro and the macro in that way. So you know, the trigger warning is basically about it says do the the nature of the subject matter. This book is not recommended for audiences younger than eighteen or for survivors of sexual violence who are currently experience severe medical, mental, et cetera. I do wonder about the positive feedback. I know that you've, unfortunately, unfortunately, you've written many women's stories, right? There are too many survivors, victims. I wonder about some of the really positive feedback you've gotten on the collection. Yeah. Um, I think one of the, one of the bits of feedback that I got, um, is that this person said something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, these mm-hmm. aren't the exact words, but that, you know, um, they felt that, you know, they, they'd never seen themselves and and their experience in someone else's work before. And actually, uh, one of the things that I love the most about that, the, the phrasing of that statement is how it is that reflection and the, and the Medusa and the mirror, and you can't, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah. like, oh my God, it's like, yeah. You know, using the metaphor like wow like that's thing you know but yeah I mean that's that to me is exactly what um I I that's like my deepest hope for this work is that there's somebody out there who has had some unfortunate and terrible things happen I mean I I I don't want that you know I don't want people to have these terrible unfortunate things happen to them but it does, and that's the reality. And and if it does, 
um, that there, there is a place maybe somewhere within literature, within, you know, I mean, I would like to think there are many places actually, mm. um, support groups, therapy, you know, all different places, not just literature, not just art, where people can feel um, recognized and seen and understood. And um, that I think sort of forms some of the foundation for, for healing and for that sort of personal reinvention. Mm-hmm. And um, because, because I do think in some respects, survivorship is a, a bit about that. I mean, I think other things are, are about reinvention as well. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, I think we go through several, iter- many iterations of the self as we age, as we grow. I mean, even we sure. just talked about how I, I sort of uh, evolved as an editor, I guess. So there is this evolution, but I think, especially um, as a survivor, the relationship that you have with your body and your mind and the things that have happened, um, the people person, people that, that may have been involved, um, there is sort of a, a, like a larger, again, I use the word reinvention that maybe needs to take place, or at least, you know, maybe I'm just speaking for Medusa and myself, you know, um, or I should say my Medusa and myself, because not, not all Medusa, not all versions of the Medusa myth go in the direction that I went. I appreciate that answer very much. Thank you. Um, the first poem is the Gorgon's parting thoughts. And it's, um, it definitely, you know, the ending, for example, is deep. There's so much uh, profundity in the poem. It's also just on a craft basis. It's like, dang, like the, the verbs you'll hear like carve and etch are obviously very active ones. There's a great line, like said, like lead thoughts thunk, you know, onomatopoeia and sound, um, freedom, as two words, <laughs> D-U-M, D-U-M-B, right? And just was, the sound of it. Um, and so I, I'd love for you to to read it and you can say as little or as much as you want about the poem. You can let it speak for itself. You can give us, you know, whatever. But yeah, again, this is the first poem. Yeah. Of the yeah. So um, one thing, th- this poem actually came from, um, so I, I mean, I was thinking heavily about decapitation. Okay. <laughs> um, so in many of the versions of, you know, Medusa's myth, right, she gets decapitated. Um, in most versions, that's by Perseus. Right. Um, and he, you know, makes off with her head and, you know, becomes a weapon for for him, basically, and and whoever he loans it to. Um, but actually, when when the human body gets decapitated, and yes, I researched this, oh, <laughs> um, there's like a 20 to 24. 20 to 30 like second uh, space where the brain um, is still like going basically like, like tra-la-la, like I'm still alive. Life is still cool. Like to some degree um, before it's like, that's it. Like it, I guess it maybe runs out of blood oxygen, all the things that it needs. Uh, Right. Um, And don't ask me how people know this, but I was going to say, how do you, okay. Yeah. (laughs) And research it. Uh. Um, so based on that premise, then I created this poem. It is between 20 and 30 lines. I think it's like 20. Whoa. You match up the seconds like with the lines. Wow. That's wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, 
you know, yeah. Anyway, um, oh. so yeah, I mean, there, 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 there were there. A lot of, I guess, layers behind this poem. Um, but, but the poem is actually, I mean, everybody reads it differently. In my mind, it, it's intended to be a breathless and and relatively swift poem, uh, because the 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 in in my imagining of this decapitation, there is that there is an awareness, some level of awareness, like, oh my God, something's happening. Sure. And you learn later in the book why there is that awareness, but I also that would be more of a spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Um, so, with what I just gave you, um, here is the Gorgon's parting thoughts. Silver slash of light like heaven, carve the exit that I've dreamt of. Etch until my neck blurts red, past your silver light to soar me, but I only drop instead like lead thoughts stunk. Did I not spit the right red prayers to lift me up? My mouth forgets now, drops words this body can't read, can't breathe, or care where thinking is stunk, and hair hisses fix me, but open neck rejects my head, and heads for which home is unknown, because only not being is free. Dumb no more, I see no silver, but hear these words. Thunk, my last thought was flawed, was wandering and wondering why others who tried to reach me froze, but he could never have been my stone. Yeah, that last line is uh, very memorable, but he could never have been my stone. And, you know, early on in reading and I'm kind of thinking, I mean, you know, there's obviously so many different meanings of stone and rock and has positive connotations. Right. Strength, perseverance. Uh, but then also, of course, you know, with the particular myth. Right. So the idea, right, was that, that, that people were turned to stone by staring at Medusa and the sisters. Right. Thank you so much for reading that one. The second no, poem is. Brad. The, the second poem is your captain speaking and there there are three maybe four versions of that right throughout the book yeah water for sure is 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 a major motif um but one of the lines that really stood out to me was who cares what other stories have told you and i was so interested in the idea of a storytelling right not like that you have told a story who who's the speaker who's the audience um for that one Sure. Um, so, I mean, the audience doesn't, doesn't change. I mean, from the perspective of like, whoever's reading this book to me is the audience. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, while I hope that there are, um, survivors that read this book, um, and that is like my, that, that my hope is that that is the primary audience. I would of course, like other people, especially people who maybe don't understand what survivors are going through to be reading this book as well as you know again that that general adult audience sure. um again this material is heavy and there are some themes that are you know not appropriate for every age but um the, the so i describe the captain as either the unreliable or ultra reliable narrator Ooh. um so so there is a separation from um the poems that are by and large spoken by Medusa, but on occasion spoken by um, the the predators. Mm. Uh, there are multiple predators in my version. Right. Um, so the the so the captain comes along, and and this sort of emerged actually as I was working on the manuscript. <laughs> um, I didn't like it was like 
okay, like I, these, I know these poems belong in this manuscript. I mean, that they're, they're communicating something, but this isn't, this definitely isn't Medusa talking. Mm. This isn't like, you know, but, but there's, I really want people to come in and question some of these things that, that the captain is saying. Sure. But I also, I also very much believe a lot of what the captain is saying mm. about uh, just sort of life things in general. Um, there are some perspectives there that, um, you know, and maybe it, it's, I guess I could say, Perhaps these are perspectives that I've had along the way or others have communicated to me along the way. Um, I like this concept that there can be, you know, paradoxical truths, I guess, basically. Like, Like, this can be true, but this also thing that's like the complete opposite can be true. So like, the one in one of the captain speakings you know is something well i have the book let me (laughs) grab it before i mess up my own line okay like this water was never hesitating just building and building then unzipping snickering at you the prey it ached to drown in its dark that that can be true that that has been true that is true but so can the healing so can the you know so can actual survival so can reinvention so can all of these other things so like it's like, okay, so is that narrator reliable or are they not? And, and I guess that's for the reader to decide. I know how I feel about it. Um, but again, like it's out there. So like people get to make their own decisions now about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that it, the, the captain is the one speaking those, those three poems and it is separate from all of the other characters. And again, like whether you see it as the unreliable narrator or the ultra reliable narrator mm. is really out of my hands at this point. Um, but yeah, like I know how I feel about it. Mm. So while the first two can kind of, I don't know, exist outside of time or they're more mythical, the the third one is called sex ed and it's, you know, it's more, you think, you know, contemporary. And it's, you know, it's it's like many of us have known these classrooms to be, it's chaotic. There's an English teacher who seems like she's kind of been pressed into duty doing that. You know, it's not her expertise. Um, there's, you know, the idea of the the eighth grader who was, who we pretty much understand maybe to be pregnant, um, you know, that sex ed came late. Um, there's a great quote uh, about naming things after the fact commands nothing too late for some people. And it's also not enough, you know, the, the classes, it seems. So that was really interesting, but there's a lot there, I guess, not, I guess there's a lot there seemingly about lack of choice, about ignorance when it comes to, you know, this idea of women as victims, but also a general ignorance about, about situations involving women, especially, you know, in in this case, young girls, I wonder about, I wonder about the connections between, you know, I guess, was that, was that placed there for a reason or could it have been anywhere else in the collection? Like coming after those two. No, I, I mean the the collection is very much. Um, it is very much chronological, mm-hmm. um, and that was actually part of the joy of this particular sort of reimagining of the myth for me. Is that you know, all the versions that I had come across of the Medusa myths, she's an adult, so there was never like a child Medusa. Like there was uh-huh. never like this concept like what was her childhood like like we we learn of medusa when she's already like 
presumably of a, of adult consenting age. Um, and so being able to kind of build out this childhood and then do tell the story in this chronological order so that by the time she actually gets to the interaction with Poseidon, you have this whole history and this understanding of of an experience and of that life beforehand, what might have happened that maybe predisposed her to, um, to having something of that nature happen to her again. Mm-hmm. To me, that was one of the, um, the sort of bright spots. That was the part where, okay, like that part, like I felt like nobody else had really told before or navigated before. So that mm-hmm. was a really exciting thing for me. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, needed to be up front. It is chronological by and large. And so it starts. So, so you get kind of dropped in at that point where like, you know, she's a young girl, um, but she's had some of these experiences already that she shouldn't know about and shouldn't have had. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So that, that to me, that, that's sort of, I guess, the logic behind why that poem appears there and sort of opens the floodgates to some of the that early childhood experience that I flesh out. Right. You know, I mean, there's there's you know, there's often like a lot there's often uh, a lot of seeds of truth and humor. I think of like a Simpsons episode with it going through sex ed, and it's just like you mentioned in the poem. You know, it's just like it's like illustrated by like cartoon characters, and I yeah. get it. I get it. You know, it makes it more palatable, or whatever. But it's just like just it's just ridiculous and there's there's very little connection you know to to the people to their lives right to kids lives yeah well and there's like I think for me um there's also this sense of like just willful ignorance so you were talking about touched on ignorance before but there's like like if somebody's pregnant in front of you like probably um maybe they didn't know some stuff, but they certainly know it now. You know what I mean? Like, and and sort of pretend like, uh, you know, maybe like that's an appropriate thing, you know, for (laughs) saying, um, or to assume, like, I mean, and granted, obviously, like, unless you're in a position as a student where you're going to go talk to a teacher and it happens to be the teacher that's teaching sex ed, you know, or whatever. I mean, I, I'm not saying in that sense that that particular teacher would be held accountable or something like if they don't know, they don't know. Sure. I mean, you would think that adults in a teaching environment would have some idea that there's going to be someone among the students mm-hmm. who have had some experiences of this nature. I mean, not say, you know, it's obviously not a teacher's place to go and try to like seek that out or figure sure. out who, yeah. but like, I, I guess maybe part of that poem for me, from my perspective is, um, I mean, again, like within the contemporary educational setting, you know, questioning of like, not just like the cartoon figures and stuff like that, like, but like really how we're approaching that in mm-hmm. retrospect, now that I am an adult seems like, like woefully inadequate and maybe willfully yeah. inadequate. And, and yeah. that's problematic big time because there are kids who have been abused mm-hmm. and what are they supposed to do with this 
education or information? What are they supposed to make of it when it's being treated like this, when that's their life, you know, when that's their lived experience, you know, it's that kind of those, those kind of questions, I guess, are all sort of layered behind that sort of poem and setup of a poem. Yeah, those those terms of phrase woefully inadequate and willfully inadequate are really, really interesting and, and seem to make and make a lot of sense. You you're talking about those who have experienced the abuse and you know, imagining them them and, and what they're thinking. The the end ending of the poem is um I, is quote, I sat silent like the like the dumb majority, wondering what those kids might be thinking interrupted by a hiss of memory unzipping something terrible swelling in me when I thought of these bodies and others I was forced to know with my own and early and you just you feel so much for this speaker you feel so much for the going through this when you know it's their cartoon characters and it's it's not um, an in-depth discussion of something that is obviously so crucial and just human experience obviously one of the themes in the book is is well, I saw this as it's like, I mean, she's going all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? Like this idea of like women only existing in contrast to man or only existing because of man, like, like in juxtaposition to man. Um, in the captain speaking, there's, there's repeated references to the flailing of the woman, the flailing. Um, one of the poems is this idea of like christening this fisherman as Lord um, and, you know, this idea, again, of men being exalted and with that happening, women being, you know, whatever the opposite of exalted is. Impressed. Subservient. Thank you. Yeah. Another great line that really makes a lot of sense is, quote, cows don't know they're fed fat. This idea about calves not knowing they're set up for slaughter. Right. And and just women's place in relation to to men. I wonder about the idea of, you know, of the relationship between men and women often as women as like a conduit for like sacrifice or not a conduit, but, but yeah, women as, as almost seen as like sacrificial beings. What about you just use the initials M and P like M and P's conversations. Is that Medusa? And how do you pronounce it? Poseidon. Poseidon. Yeah. I mean, that, so just this idea of Medusa as, as a sacrificial lamb as representative of, of so many women. Well, I mean, it's sort of like a story that I wish that we didn't have to keep telling because it seems like we should be like beyond it by now. But then, you know, you look around and you see very much that we're not a lot of us very much are not. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, these sort of like human sacrifices, (laughs) I mean, maybe you're not being murdered, but a part of you is is being, you know, violated violently, part of you, maybe you do feel like dies. Mm. Um, When these things, you know, happen, you experience this type of violence. So, you know, Medusa certainly isn't the only uh, character and certainly the only like mythological, like, you know, I mean, there are other uh, stories of rape and survivorship, Mm. um, you know, across cultures, across times, across genres, all that that um but uh for me that that just happened to be the i guess the one that um you know again just kind of um kept well in in a weird way and like a serpentine way circling like mm. I, I actually um did create this piece of art in junior high of medusa oh wow so it's funny because like after the book came out 
I was going through um, some of my old like portfolio photos and stuff like that from like, you know, like high school, you know, again, like just earlier art stuff. Mm. And I, I found, and I'm like, oh my God, yeah, I did that. And like, oh yeah, I also oh, did this, yeah. this one later on in college, I did like another iteration. Like, that's really weird. Like, why was I doing that? Because I, I really didn't delve into the story mm-hmm. the way that I did until I was in grad school. But it seems like for whatever reason, and I think there is something compelling about the imagery and, and it's unfortunate because then you see like commercials like from amazon that are like that's not like that's not the point people should be getting (laughs) from the story but like hey i mean who am i i'm not a gazillionaire so i guess i don't get to make those calls but um yeah it's i mean the the imagery and i you know it's powerful and it's compelling and it it does it's just very evocative and and I think it it draws people to the story. So in a weird way, in some respects, it's very poetic because we we do a lot with image and poetry, right? And we rely on image to communicate something that maybe words directly can't. Right. And so here you have this visual image, this very visceral visual image of this woman with snakes for hair. And there's something that's just very terrifying, but also... Um, compelling about it and it draws you in and you have these questions and then you and if you're me then you start doing all this research and then you write a thesis and then you write a book Mm. (laughs) like you know I guess it just something that uh, was with me yeah well thank you and you know I mean talk about like ideas of sacrifice and victims I mean in the myths that you're you know intending that you're using it's like the head, even after her death, the head is used, right? The head is used yeah. For, yeah. for, I mean, it's like not even having control past her death of her body. You know, all the abuse is not sexual, but a lot of it is sexual. And you, you were talking about like the snake, of course, which is such a motif and, and very um, evocative. There's the poem. I think the poem was called Snake in the Grass. It's repeated, you know, snake in the grass and this idea of this unknown man. And they're saying, I'll keep our secret again. And that last word again, obviously implies so much of like a continuous, to me, to me, a continuous victim, you know, victimizing uh, of so many. Um, And even, you know, the idea of, you know, the men as predatory, I think it's the third captain poem. Um, the, The line is, the lines are men keep advancing, the same gaze awaits, everything petrifies. So as the collection goes on, there is more about um, men being, I mean, to use the term impotent, but impotent as far as like the power is not going to work on this woman, on these women. Um, notes from the, I don't know how you pronounce the word, N-A-D-I-R, Nader, right? Nader. Yeah. Notes from the Nader, um, this idea of no savior awaits. And that this the this woman, these women are not necessarily finding their savior um, in him. And, that, and, that, and that's a realization, right? That's a realization that they're they're not, Link, they don't have to be linked to him. Is that is that a too simplistic reading? Am I reading that correctly? Of kind of like this drawing away from. Yeah, I mean, it's this uh, recognition. I think so. You know, part of the social socialization, um, and I'm sure it's not just within our culture, or our time, but part of the socialization of women, in particular, in American culture today, mm-hmm. um, is this idea. You know, like of that that like this Prince Charming kind of thing that like yeah. where. You, 
this dude to come and save you and like sweep you off your feet and like solve your problems for you and all that stuff when <laughs> I don't think that that's true to lived experience. Let's just put it that way. Sure. Um, and so after these things sort of happen in Medusa's life over and over again, she comes to terms with this these this way that she's been socialized and there is a religious tie so there's this this these christian concepts that come mm-hmm. in um so the socialization is not just like general like secular but it's also religious socialization where you know god is male right god is the father and 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 you're supposed to you know again you're supposed to be saved by something male mm-hmm. but but what her lived experience tells her is no, like, in fact, if anything, she needs to be saved from everything male Mm -hmm. because these men are predators and that no savior awaits. Now, what you learn later is that if there is a savior to be had, it is oneself. And as a woman, as a survivor, as somebody who goes through that sort of healing, reinvention, mm-hmm. processing of this trauma, et cetera. Um, but it certainly doesn't exist uh, within this story outside of oneself. It certainly doesn't exist in any man mm-hmm. character in this story. I appreciate that. I um, One of my favorites of all time, I feel like it's so resonant, is the allegory of the cave. And there's 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 a lot in towards the middle, towards the end of the collection about the idea of like taking the blinders off. You know, that's the one where he's literally there's literally blinders and cannot see. And when he does see, he only sees like shadows of the real thing. Right. That kind of stuff. And there's ideas of, you know, of the of the women, the speakers, you know, seeing the light, but choosing to to see the light. I'm I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But I wonder then, like, if there is this oppression if there are these these predatory males where does the where does that self education where does that that desire or that ability to go see the light and to be to work outside of these of this trauma where does that come from i guess well um within the 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 framework of this book yeah. um i would say you know it's like um you get sick and tired of being sick and tired Mm. the phrase that people a lot of people will become like will feel like oh i've heard that and understand sort of what that means whether on a language linguistic level or an actual lived experience level um so that poem that you were talking about note from the nadir right that's the low point so that that would be technically a quote-unquote rock bottom Mm -hmm. to use again terms that people might be familiar with um within like contemporary society um and i'm not saying that that's necessary for everyone i don't know that it is Mm -hmm. but i do think that um at a certain point there there may be a choice for a particular person and that choice is um i carry on this way and i and and it leads to my demise essentially whether uh literally or metaphorically mm-hmm. um which is where that the trigger warning for the suicidal ideation comes in right or um i figure out how to be different 
and live despite this Mm -hmm. and um and find again that sort of like savior within myself Mm. um but i think that again within this story's framework that that sort of crucial piece is you gotta kind of get the sick and tired of being sick and tired first yeah yeah um like if if you you're just kind of carrying on um not either not looking at the experience not not questioning the experience not interrogating it basically um then i don't know that you get to that point necessarily like so for example like if you look at the the childhood medusa right she's aware that things are bad and that that's not supposed to happen, but she hasn't fully interrogated her experiences the way that she has by the time she gets to Nader and she's Mm -hmm. had more negative experiences that that's sort of like that. I think that that sort of stepping stone to that sort of, okay, well then what can there be after what what's next for me? Mm -hmm. And that's so then when you see in the reinvention sequence when she essentially wakes up there is this opportunity and she has to embrace that opportunity and thankfully (laughs) uh, you see her embrace that opportunity as opposed to try the other way again right um because there's only i mean that that there's only one way that ends and that's death so if you're not going to end then there has to be some other way you go on um that is not leading to that that sort of death spiral doomed thing Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean that's i i i I tried my best to flesh that out within Mm -hmm. that storyline and hopefully i i did you did i mean there's so many interesting levels layers here you know obviously myth and greek myth and and these stories have so much about fate right that you know these people are fated to fated f-a-t-e-d to get married or you know etc and this idea of like you know kind of like a lack of free will and so that obviously relates to self-worth um there's one of the poems is about you know like the stars like what's the point of naming them this idea of like they're always in motion and you know you think of the stars and fate you're a, well, I mean, I feel like it's it's pretty much gaslighting to use the mo- modern term. And in, in one of M and P's exchanges, the poem, he says, you're a cage for yourself, which, you know, it's just is hurtful and hateful. But it seems like what you're what you're saying is that there is that understanding that she does. She can see herself that there's a cage that not that she's built, but that, you know, ways to get out of it. Right. Um, fate, the idea of the weight of the past tethers me. And then there's so much about realizing that okay it doesn't have to be fate there is there are choices involved here not easy ones of course um but i thought that was so interesting the the way you use fate and how it's related to to self-worth when i was asking about you know how you how you move on how you move on not the word how you get out of this how you talk you talk about your lowest point one of the poems is cheer Mm -hmm. and i i thought these lines resonated so so much so loudly Quote, when you're the only one coming to your defense, the only word, and then talking about the only words I feel safe speaking, I scream. And at first I read that as pretty, like, I don't know, depressing or upsetting. And I think, and there is a lot to that, but I I do see that as like, 
this this is one of my ways of of you know dealing with my pain. I'm gonna scream. I'm gonna you know the cheerleaders have the cool moves and the killer chops as it's described, and just like a very very slow process, but part of this process of healing. And you know healing I think is overused. You, I really like your term about reinvention, very much. Thank you. We talked a lot about I'm um, obviously um, you know self worth is is a big part of this. The the denouement, and I feel great you know, speaking the French, right. It <laughs> is one of the, uh, is I think the last like subheading. Right. And I don't want to simplify and I don't want to give away the, the endings, but there, there's such a, the questions start to happen. There are more questions and you really see the process as the speaker really starts to push the questions outwards. Right. There's yeah. all, there are always going to be the internal questions, but it's more about, you know, um, shedding skin. There's so many metaphors like that. And there are questions to pee. Like, I got some questions for you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how can you steal what's already been stolen? Which again is is more kind of like screw you than you know before it was is more maybe self self pity if that's the word, right? Yeah, I mean, women are taught to internalize the bad mm-hmm. things that outside people do to them, right? And and so to move into a space where when someone is actively violent towards you in a way, whether it be verbally, emotionally, physically, sexually, all of the above, um, any combination, uh, anything I left out, mm-hmm. um, to be able to 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 not internalize it and say, whoa, no, wait, like that's on you. Like mm-hmm. that's you doing those things to me this isn't something that i brought upon myself or i did to cause this this is like your abuse your illness your dysfunction your hatred it's you Mm -hmm. that's that's a a, i mean and and you see like you've just described in this book you see her move from that place of that internal way that she was socialized to internalize what's happening to her is somehow her fault Mm -hmm. um to no like i'm now you know kind of holding it up in your face and pointing out this is your doing not mine yeah you talked about earlier, you know, about about the audience, and and obviously, a someone who's not a survivor cannot one hundred percent empathize. But you do with your work, you do as close of a job as possible, right? For those who who are reading it, and you know, obviously, on a lo- in a logical sense, a logical sense, a person could say, okay, someone who's a, a victim of of sexual abuse of rape, it is not her fault, it is not his fault. We logically, right? But your book is so moving in in moving throughout the process in showing us how this person came to the realization and a couple uh, great ending uh, stanza here of the questions for P one quote, then came this realization. The joke has always been on you. I fear what need is there for consolation. Once the girls found her champion, if I could snap, I would, <laughs> I, snap. I physically cannot snap, but just beautiful moving and, and all of the above. What, what an ending to that, to that piece. going to leave the ending to the reader the reader people listening need to get this book it's um quite an achievement 
incredible achievement just for for anyone for any book whatsoever any collection but for a debut even more so it's obviously i mean the craft is incredible and then just the the subject matter so moving so you know huge congratulations thank you uh, it's such an emotional you know journey through like i mean again i love that term reinvention about seeing this this woman really coming into her own power coming into her own voice and it could easily be done in a you know, cheesy or patronizing way. And it's, it's definitely not. So I'd love to know about, about future projects, if you want to share and definitely yeah. tell us about the fundraiser and its connection to, to this book. And the subject sure. So um, I'm right now I'm doing a, well, like I'm in the final stages because we're now in national poetry month, right? Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. April. Um, oh, look, which at that, look at that poster has... in back of me. Sorry. That poster. Yeah. In back of me. Yeah. Poetry. Um, so, um, this is also a sexual assault awareness, um, month. So it's the abbreviation is Sam S A A M. Um, and so my book came out May of last year. So I had just kind of like missed, you know, poetry month and Sam. And so I was like, okay, like I, like if there's there's a way for me to do something with this work um that directly benefits survivors so like yeah i mean i i hope as many survivors who are ready um and and want to engage with this work do mm. um but also maybe there are there are certainly those that don't i still want my work to somehow benefit people that um you know, whether or not they read poetry, whether or not they ever come across my book, Mm -hmm. Um, to be able to do something with my work that supports survivors very directly, like as in funds, as in money and support, like that's, that supports their, um, you know, their therapy, going to the hospital, uh, you know, finding other arrangements, you know, for their life, on different levels, um, all sorts of different ways that um, uh, an organization in this case, like Resilience out of Chicago, um, which is a nonprofit that directly supports survivors, mm. um, can provide, then I want to be able to do that. And so, um, again, I had missed April of last year because my book didn't come out until May. Yeah. So I had been thinking about it ever since. Um, and so I decided to put together, I, I had, I had come across, you know, as, as you kind of speak, you know, your truth and, and you put things out into the universe, you know, people who have had similar experiences, they reach out to you, you come across them. However, the, the paths cross, but the paths start crossing. And so I started crossing paths with a lot of other poets who also are survivors, who have also written on the subject. And so the one in particular, um, Zoe Faye Stint, had posted that um, her uh, book was coming out, her chapbook, I believe, um, Bird Body was coming out you know, in the next year or whatever. And is anybody doing any like events? And here's what the subject matter is. And when I saw that there, it was also dealing with sexual violence, um, not just sexual, sexual violence, but that was one of the subjects. Mm. I was like, you know, now's the time. Like, I'm going to, like, I'm ready to, to, to say, Hey, you know, like, 
all these people also have written about this and like, maybe we should do something together. And so that's exactly what I did. Oh man. And, yeah. So then I, um, at the time only magazine, which is a, a literary journal out of Ohio, um, they had put out this call. It was like 5,000 pitches or something like that. And they were basically taking pitches for different ideas that they wanted to get involved in and in various ways. It could, I mean, and they were like really wide open. Like it could be anything. It didn't necessarily have to be like super um, like, like it didn't have to be like about a poem, like poem mm-hmm. submissions or, or, you know, this type of submission or that, you know, it didn't even have to be like a literary magazine. And so in the end, they, they, I, I pitched them. I said, you know, if you want to host um, this event, you know, I'm interested in doing this fundraiser. Um, I'm definitely going to do it. So if there is um, any interest in, in hosting the event as like a literary magazine, like I would love to, to, to do that with you. Okay. And they responded and they were like very interested. So, um, so then we had that kind of squared away and then it was like, okay, well, so now we need to find the beneficiary org. And I had, I had actually participated in a, in an event uh, in April of 2022 with resilience um, it, you know, that, that was an event that they put on and, um, that sort of also kind of gave me some ideas of like, okay, well, how can I frame this so that, um, it, we talk about this openly and we like bring the art into it, but we also like, don't leave people like feeling hopeless. Like, how do we bring the, like, basically sort of like the end of my book, how do we right. bring that people like in the here and now? without reading the entire end of a book. Um, and they, they did this grounding ceremony at the end. And so I was like, really, I was like, wow, yeah, that's like really, um, that's a really great approach and really interesting. And that's something that Mm. like I could see us bringing together, like in a very tangible way, like we have all of these writers who, who've published work specifically on this, they're poets, right? So it's, again, it's national poetry month. And now we're going to kind of bring in this literary magazine to host. Um, we're going to bring in this organization that's going to benefit. So then the, the next aspect of it, you know, and, oh, and then like that, that, that sort of grounding ceremony to like, you know, kind of bring it all together and, and leave, leave people, um, feeling more aware, but also more empowered. Yeah. Um, and then how do we kind of inspire donations? And so one of the things that I'm most excited about, um, about this particular uh, fundraiser is I really, I really thought long and hard about tailoring it towards fellow writers. Um, so raising awareness about this issue among the literary community was really important to me. And so we're offering like all sorts of different writerly related things from like book bundles to like, I, I mean, I, the, the big package, the, the, the sort of like piece de resistance uh, mm. to go back to parlaying the Francais mm. um, is um, this package where I'm offering if somebody, you know, ha- has maybe not enough money to hire a publicist, but enough money um, to donate $1,000 to resilience and support survivors, then I am offering free of charge then um, to review uh, their their current or forthcoming poetry collection, mm. um, to do an interview, to get these things published. So I have connections within the literary community to where, yeah. I, you know, worst case scenario, I can always publish this on my blog. But mm. um, 
you know, things that can actually help like get, you know, a, a fellow writer's like get the word out there about fellow writers work in a big way. Um, but also actively benefit survivors um, and really kind of connect those two with that through that sort of auction sort of connection. So supporting survive, like basically what's the thing like that would allow me to support survivors and also like help a, a fellow um, creative. Mm-hmm. And that, that for me was it. So like, you know, things of that nature, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch only is offering um, mystery swag packages. One of mm. them is uh, involving adult beverages. Hey. <laughs> um, so, you know, who doesn't like that? Uh, um, and, uh, and then we also, uh, we had uh, Kith books reach out to us um, after we had sort of already launched the fundraiser, but they were interested. And so they've got book bundles from their authors uh, very generous that they're offering. And then um, the Catherine, one of their founders is offering um, a package where she's doing a consultation on somebody's manuscript to help them mm. not only get the manuscript polished, but like, Hey, I can teach you about like, if you want to self publish, or if you want to yeah. start, you know, trying to get your book published by a traditional publisher. So mm. it's been like, it's been really amazing kind of seeing like, all of these people sort of come together um, to try to, again, like really kind of bring these, like the, the literary community and the survivor community together, yeah. like for mutual benefit. Oh, so. man. Well, so many connections and so many options. The best place would be, would it be your, where should we go online to find the options, the connections, the. Yeah. So I've been posting <laughs> about this fundraiser literally every day without fail since March 1st social media so the best place to go is to either my my Twitter which again like you'd mentioned is at free radical RP mm-hmm. um, to go to my Instagram which is at Reagan R-A-E-G-E-N M as in Mary P as in Peter so my middle and last initials um, on Instagram, like I said, I've been, I've been doing, it'll be in my stories. Yeah. I post the link to the, okay. to the fundraiser, the link to the fundraiser. It's like, uh, it's on Resilience's site as well, but it's, yeah. it's, it's a resilience website. So it, it and it's kind of long. Like if, if I could, I don't unfortunately have like a bitly, um, I should have probably, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, beforehand, but, um, but all you have to do is look at any number of my social media posts, okay. because like I said, posted about it every single day since March 1st and even before that but all you have to do is go through my scroll like it's there you will find it in my Instagram stories you will find it in my Instagram post you'll find it on my Twitter post like it'll be yeah um, it'll take you right there also the reading is free you don't have to donate to attend like we also don't want this um to be uh, it shouldn't be a financial burden like if you are in a position to donate please do but if you're not please don't feel excluded like like we want everybody to to be able to participate in Mm -hmm. that in this event again in the raising awareness in the the healing process in the you know just processing in general mm-hmm. um you know connecting with fellow creatives who you know whether you want to connect with us you know as survivors or you're connecting with us as creatives like mm-hmm. or both 
Um, we are there. We're trying to inspire community. We're trying yeah. to create community. We're trying to further community. Well, thank you so much uh, for the really, really, really important work. Um, thank you for pulling this all together. And, you know, it's like you talk about like your social media, it's like the opposite of doom scrolling, right? You're going to scroll through, you're going to find some really interesting events and ways to, to contribute. And like I said, it's really important work. I'll be sure to include the resilience links, the social media links um, in, in the series notes um, for sure. And then hopefully, you know, and post about that on my own social, social media as well. So thank you. Thank you for the important work. Thanks for talking to us. It's um, it's so interesting to, to hear about your rationale and the background about what you wrote. And, uh, you know, besides being a great collection, it's obviously a really, it's an important collection. So thanks for sharing it with the world. And thanks for sharing this time with me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been such a pleasure. And wish you continued great luck with your work. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 176 with Reagan Petruca. You can now subscribe to this podcast on Apple and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. Sign up now for the Chills at Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 177 with Laura Worrell, Worrell, excuse me. She's the author of Sweet, Soft, Plenty Rhythm, a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction and the Barnes & Noble Discover Prize, and long-listed for the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction and the Golden Poppy Book Award through the California Independent Booksellers Alliance. Her writing has been published in the New York Times, Lit Hub, Los Angeles Review of Books, Huffington Post, The Rumpus, The Writer, and other publications. This episode will air on April 11th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Reagan Petruca, whose work, like Head of a Gorgon, gives you chills at will. Thank you.